0: Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. But where is the Bureau of Lost Culture? Well, we're mainly based here in Soho in London, but we do like to pack our belongings every now and again, get into the Bureau's mobile home and set off on search of lost and half-remembered countercultural stories and oral testimonies from all over the place. It seems unlikely we'll be able to go back to Russia for some time, sadly, or to the Ukraine, But we are planning various trips around these islands and across the Atlantic in the next year or so. In the meantime, you can investigate all our doings at bureauoflostculture.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, contact us to make suggestions about who and what you would like us to investigate and you can even support our wild endeavours if you choose to. We would very much appreciate that. For this episode, we are staying in London. We're travelling north from Soho to a place that perhaps more than Soho, Kings Road or Labrick Grove, has retained its countercultural spirit Camden Town. It's also a place close to my heart, as it's the first place I lived in London when I arrived as a young immigrant. And our guide is our old friend, the writer and researcher Tom Bolton perhaps best known for his wonderful books on London's Lost Rivers, but also the author of several other works on the city, including Camden Town, Dreams of Another London. Welcome, Tom.
1: Hi. Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. Tom, of course, you've become associated really with London's uh, Lost Rivers. I've written two books about them and given walks, which are rather wonderful. Of course, one of them, The Fleet largely runs underneath uh, big bits of Camden and when we yes. were talking about you know, what has Camden got to do with the counterculture in London and I think let's start off with that, I mean why Camden?
1: Well I'm interested in parts of London that have somehow been ignored or not understood fully or not examined fully or appreciated and that certainly includes lost rivers, I mean they're literally buried, you can't see them, you have to go digging around in in historical maps and elsewhere to get a sense of where they used to be it doesn't, on the surface, sound so logical to apply that to Camden Town, which in some ways is really well known, but I think it's overlooked. I think it's a place that people take for granted and move on because it's had so much attention and coverage. And it's actually quite special to London, quite particular. It has real distinct character that tells you you're in Camden Town.
0: I'm going to give you a couple of quotes from your own book. I thought these book-ended Camden Town rather neatly, actually. You say, Camden Town can seem like the only place in London to be. Summer sunset on Camden Lock, groups leaning on the rails watching the barges. The Victorian labyrinth of the lock market squeezed into oddly shaped corners and hidden courtyards. The dome of the roundhouse, going to come back to that, rising over the railway lines like a north London pantheon. Pubs in every direction, each for a different tribe. Records, books, comic shops still, if you know where to look. The high street lined with folk art signs in the form of giant boots and facade-crawling dragons, music in all directions from bands in the back rooms of pubs last redecorated in the 1970s, to venues of choice for whoever's in town. Coco and the Jazz Café, Cecil Sharp House and The Green Note, The Fiddler's Elbow, London Irish Centre, Dingwalls, The Underworld, Beneath the Whirlsland Pub, The Dublin Castle, Camden Assembly. All you need is within the compass of three stops on the Northern Line. The celebrated Camden Town, the famously obscure Mornington Crescent, and the elegant Art Nouveau Chalk Farm. Camden can also seem like the last place in London to be. I'll Mm -hmm. I'll give you the next quote a bit later on, but that is a rather wonderful summation of the sunny uplands of Camden Town, which, by the way, if anybody's listening, I'm sure most people have heard of Camden Town. Obviously, if you live in London. If you're not in London, Camden Town is famous to a lot of people, tourists and young people in particular for its markets, isn't it, Tom? But the way you described it then, I mean... It is that. It is that, isn't it? It's this wonderful kind of cornucopia of countercultural stuff.
1: I think it's a place people come looking for something that they can't define, hoping something will happen. And often that's based around music, it's based around meeting like-minded people, it's it's about going somewhere different where everybody is exploring. And that could be amazing. And it's what you want from a city. Mm-hmm. I think what first interested me in, in Camden Before I ever came to London or came to Camden in particular, when I was young, was the idea there was this town, something Kentish Town as well, both of them. I thought, what is this? This stop on the tube map. I knew the tube map really well. What's this town? Is it something separate? Has it got its own its own kind of rules? I was going to ask you that because I never thought of
0: it until I was looking at your book. And it's like, why is it Camden Town, as though it's some sort of separate place inside the city?
1: Well, I think it's just a way of distinguishing stations, really, because you've got mm. Camden Road as well. Right. Um, but it's, it's, not, it's not something that's used in many London contexts. You've got Acton Town, which, although I have lived in Acton, doesn't really have quite the same um, presence. But you don't, you don't have Lambeth Town or Hackney Town, do you? So I think it reflects to some extent. The, the feeling of this being a separate place and camden is is a bit of an island in some ways it's surrounded by railways canals um, regents park all down one side and the kind of you know really high-end housing that goes with that and then um the railway that cuts that off from camden a real physical barrier mm. so in some ways it's a bit beleaguered it's not like an ex- it's not an expansive neighborhood it's six streets effectively north south all kind of um pressed in together. It feels constrained. I read When I first started writing this book, I thought I'd read somewhere a quote that claimed that Camden Town was the lowest point in London. And while that's clearly not physically true, I think the perception is really interesting. Because I thought it was true at first, and I looked into it, and it was clearly nonsense. But the idea that things all drain down towards Camden, <laughs> it's where you kind of end up by default, eventually. And obviously, there's a kind of sleaze attached to that as well. So it's, it all come, goes hand in hand. You have the possibility you have the reality, all fronting each other.
0: You do, and I'm going to le- read the second part of your quote, uh, which is, Camden Town can seem like the last place in London to be. The seedy lock with its jostling undercurrent of menace. French teenagers and Spanish punks ripped off by fake weed salesmen. Market stalls with all the appeal and originality of Oxford Street tourist shops, selling souvenirs of when Camden was different. Overpriced, overhyped pubs running on the fumes of their reputations an alternative cultural scene, once influential and important, now sold up or selling out, packed streets and overcrowded venues, bad bands in worst cellars, shameful poverty, bad housing, people who have never seen the Thames, street sleepers and shop doorway drinkers, 3am assaults, gang fights, murders, gentrification, and too many overcrowded tube stations.
1: Well, that's it. You can't have one without the other, can you? So... One of the things that everyone always says about Camden, particularly the market, is that it was not, not as good as it used to be. Mm. Um, I think this is really official policy, actually. It goes all the way up to the very top. People look at Camden and think this needs to change. This mm. needs to be sorted in some way. But this goes back a long way, and it's unclear what it was ever really meant to be as a place. I don't think it ever turned out quite the way it was intended. It was full of very poor housing generated by the railways. So it's a railway town. Right. And in the 1830s, when the railway starts to arrive, um, the line out of Euston to Birmingham, which runs straight through Camden, is the first intercity railway line. So it's there at the very beginning of the railway boom. And it was a frontier town Hmm. in some ways. It was somewhere right on the edge which was full of noise and confusion and construction works. This is all in Dickens, who documents in a very flamboyant way the digging up of the whole of Camden to build the railway that went right through it. So although there are very posh bits of Camden around the edges, Primrose Hill, Mm. Camden Square, the main central block of the place has never been respectable, really. It's always been dirty, Mm. uh, particularly dirty. The smoke from the railway was quite something. The the Primrose Hill Primary School, right by the Camden Goods Yard, the big um, central railway depot where the market now is and Morrison's, was known as Smoketown School because of the incredible amounts of smoke that coated it. And all the terraces down by the railway, which are now repainted and beautifully white, until the 80s, really, they were filthy. And it was it's an incredibly unhealthy place to be. Very dirty, genuinely unpleasant. And the kind of nostalgia of the steam train forgets about what it was <laughs> actually like to live next to coal fires, <laughs> constantly burning. You know, So that's a... It's a blight, really, and that's yeah. something that's both um, shaped the place and prevented it from being something else, really.
0: You said that there were these three countercultural centres in London, uh, and that Camden, in a way, is the one which is less talked about than, say, Kings Road or Labret Grove, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the Kings Road is that's something that's gone now, isn't it? It's mm. an era when mm. that was that was everything, and now very little trace of it. Uh, but Camden is its still there, it's still changing. It's a place that's still got that sort of cultural significance. And it's got a lot of music venues in it, in it in particular. There are lots of places you can go and see bands, lots of places where there's live music and lots of different sorts of music too in a very small area, which makes it really Britain's musical center. But that's not something that's been very clearly understood or acknowledged, I think. I mean, if I was Camden Council, I'd be making sure that distinctive local character was enabled and developed and protected. But I don't think that's how people see Camden. They don't see it as a cultural treasure. They see it as a bit of a mess. Of course it's both. I'm gonna play you a little bit of audio. Tom, do you recognise that? Yes, indeed. That's uh, Murray Lloyd. Yeah. Well, musical mm-hmm. is something that was very much a Camden, a Camden thing. A musical, of course, was big everywhere um, in the early years of the 20th century until First World War really, and a little bit afterwards. But Camden had the Bedford Music Hall. And if you're looking for Camden's cultural musical origins, you can take it back to that sort of time certainly. And on the one hand you've got this Palace of Varieties really, Palace of Entertainment. It's Murray Lloyd's favorite place to perform. She right. was a, right. a, a you know, an incredibly popular star of the time. She lived nearby as well for quite a long time. And the Bedford Musical was this um centre of entertainment where you could go and see the stars of the day for quite a long period Walter Sickert the uh, painter lived very nearby Mornington Crescent and he painted a lot of interiors in the Bedford musical so a number of very well-known pictures are pictures of the performers and the audience and the kind of slightly grimy um, candlelit atmosphere of these places.
0: And was that, was the Music Hall thing a kind of largely a working-class thing or was it across, I
1: know T.S. Eliot was a fan, but I mean <laughs> was, it, was it across the classes then? Well it was significantly working-class for really. these weren't the most respectable places but the, the Bedford was a bigger auditorium than most so it had a, a, a better clientele I think but Camden it's not a you know, it's not an upmarket area mm. it's, a, it's a solidly working-class part of London mm. until the gentrification of the 60s really. Um, so Bedford was part of that. And around around the back of that uh, block was also the Bedford Tavern, which was the centre for Irish music. So the Irish story is a significant part of this as well. Lots of Irish people came to Camden to build the railways. So from, well, the canal, actually, which came before the railways. So right from the beginning of the 19th century, you've got navvies coming over. And then there's a tradition of people coming to Camden to look for work in the building trade in particular. that goes right through to the you know, the modern era, really. Um, but in Camden, you've got a significant Irish population, big stretch of Irish neighbourhoods across North London. Camden's at the centre of that. And the London Irish Centre um, hmm. in Camden is kind of the core as well. So that's, that was set up basically a distance from um, the big stations that you could walk carrying a heavy bag. That's the idea. So you get off the train, walk to the the Irish Centre, find somewhere to live and find somewhere to work. So
0: when are we talking about it? When's that then?
1: Well that goes through from the 19th century I mean the London Irish Centre is later but the 19th century is when the railway boom first brought lots of people to dig these enormous trenches through Camden. Right through to the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, when hmm. it's still a very Irish place in hmm. terms of culture, and people still come over to work for Macalpine's, for example. So Dominic Behan wrote a song called Macalpine's Fusiliers, Dominic Behan, Brendan Behan's brother, uh, musical figure who was uh, very well known in Camden. And Macalpine's Fusiliers is about what a terrible idea it is to go and work for Macalpine's. <laughs> because of the way they treat you
0: the the, the big construction company so people so basically people would come on the ferry over to liverpool uh from ireland and then get on the train come to euston yeah and then it was within walking distance of course Camden's within walking distance of the station yes right so then you'd walk and then you'd find your community people that you already knew that already arrived or you go to the community center and you find somewhere to live and it was it was you know it was pretty poor and dirty and shabby right
1: yes but there was work so um, yeah, it's so somewhere you could go and be sure of a job, a manual manual job in all probability mm. um, so you've got the culture that comes with that and the Bedford Town was place where you have a whole series of semi-legendary mid-century, mid-20th century folk musicians mm. from Ireland including Margaret Barry, the so-called Queen of the Gypsies um, who performed often in Camden in fact she performed on the street in Camden sometimes Mm -hmm. as well as in the taverns and a series of other musicians from various parts of the Republic Um, and they in the 50s in particular were to be found in the pubs of Camden performing and this is because there were a lot of people needing entertaining so you finish work you can't go back to your lodgings at that time until a certain hour (laughs) so a lot of people have nothing to do and nowhere to go between the end of work and say 9 o'clock at night probably later. Um, So they all go to the pubs. Um, Probably didn't need a huge amount of persuading anyway, but it's structured so that everybody is out at a certain time. They're all out in the pubs. This is where the culture develops. This is where the entertainment's to be had. Right, of course. So
0: bringing with them that kind of Irish musical culture and...
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Playing together and and that being part of your kind of daily, nightly, evening entertainment as well.
1: Yes, definitely. And then... That leads into the the folk boom in the 60s because Bill Leader, who was the head engineer at um, Topic Records, was based off Camden Square. So he lived very nearby and he'd go into these pubs, he'd book people, he'd bring them to his house, his flat, in fact, to uh, record sessions. And that's where a lot of musicians who later became the core Mm. of the folk boom, like uh, Bert Jansch and and others performed and Bert Jansch, of course, recorded Black Waterside, which is a classic track of the early 60s, that influenced all sorts of people, took folk from a kind of, you know, uh, instrumental, um, traditional hmm. context out into the rock world to some extent. And that's an Irish tune. It's an Irish tune. He may well have picked up in camden but it's certainly from the repertoire it's what was circulating around there
0: and then, don't forget he is buried of course in highgate uh, cemetery just up the hill right
1: yes yes uh, right oh. so
0: you've got all those things coming together um the, the, this kind of musical tapestry which sort of soaks the whole place and i mean i was just thinking when you're talking about that because right up to you know very recent times you had the brit in the 90s was a, was a kind yeah. of Camden phenomenon, wasn't it? And then right up to, you know, uh, Amy Winehouse, who's a local, but also, yes. you know, what people remember Amy Winehouse for in, in, in Camden was that she was in the pub singing, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's, that's it. So there's a whole lineage you can, you can follow of, of musical styles that have a lot of origin in the venues of Camden. So you've got 60s um, psychedelia alternative performance as well around the roundhouse... Then you've got punk. I mean, punk could could easily claim to have started in Britain in Camden with the Ramones and their performance at the Roundhouse. right? And there was certainly a lot of punk connection to studios around there. And then you've got the New Romantics um, at the Camden Ballroom, which leads almost directly into um, the, the rave culture of the summer of love. Connections between soft sell and people who started using ecstasy. And it's only a few years afterwards that so that changed. Then you have rave venues in Camden. And then you have Britpop, which yeah, is a bit turn. of a, Backlays, a yeah. left turn. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, absolutely. Vagleys at King's Cross. Um, it's Britpop seems like a bit of a reaction against that in some ways, but mm-hmm. then there's lots of different things going on there. Some of it's mm. sort of much more press-generated than mm. organic, but some of it people in pubs again. And then you've got Amy Winehouse and the Libertines and so on. Right. It's quite a story, really.
0: It is an amazing story. I mean, it's interesting with the Britpop thing because actually a lot of those bands weren't from Camden Blur and and a lot of those people, they sort of honed in on Camden. And I think think, uh, Graham still lives there. It's like... Right. It's because that was the place to be for sort of independent musicians in some ways, wasn't it? It's always had that feel about it.
1: Yes. I think by then Camden had started to have a reputation as a Mm. place to go. I mean, I think a lot of my early impressions of what Camden might be like were formed by Withnail and I thinking mm-hmm. about it, uh, which is it, it's a sort of sixties nostalgia film, really. But I think people started to look back to a previous generation, what was going on in Camden in the sixties from the nineties, and they thought, "You know, what can we do? What can we take from this?"
0: One of my favourite films, and funnily enough, I've got a little bit about it here because I was going to ask you about it. If I let me just read this: Withnail and I it was set in Camden and it reflects much of the ambience of late 1960s, centred on Albert Street just before gentrification hits the streets Writer and director Bruce Robinson was at drama school when in 1967 he moved into an Albert Street house that had been bought by a classmate Lord David Dundas Heir to the Marquis of Zetland, a student with more money than most, the flat became a student squat. And while Dundas had had enough and bought himself another flat in Hampstead, his friends continued to live on Albert Street, enjoying Guinness for breakfast, wine for lunch, and joints for tea. By 1969, only Robinson and fellow student Vivian and McCarroll were left at Albert Street, their payments frozen, enduring a bitterly cold winter, living off pilchards, raisins, and turnips scavenged from the market. Their life on the margins portrayed in the opening scenes of Wednail and has from your book. So, so that's
1: it, isn't it, actually? it was It's very much Camden, isn't it? And but th- there's something quite alluring about that, even though yeah. it's about poverty. I think it's because the possibility is there, isn't it, that they could end up doing anything. But mostly it's just a really funny film, beautifully, beautifully written and also beautifully located, because those locations make you... Think instantly of the place. Mm,
0: totally, and also I think with the the film ends with with Nelson in Regent's Park, and he's looking over looking over the ruins uh, to the zoo,
1: quoting Hamlet.
0: I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame the earth seems to me a sterile promontory. Most excellent canopy, the air! Look you, this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire. Why it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. What a piece of work is a man! How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties! How like an angel in apprehension! How like a god! The beauty of the world! Paragon of animals! Yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me! No, no women neither. No women neither. I mean, Camden's where the home of the zoo, right? But also the market, Cecil Sharp House. Let's talk about that in terms of music and counterculture and folk and stuff. Right? Yeah.
1: Well, Cecil Sharp House is perhaps not something that people think of immediately when they when they imagine Camden because it doesn't quite fit the template. It's not mm. sort of scuzzy. Mm. Um, it's it's if anything highly respectful. But I'm very fond of Cecil Sharp House. It's a it's a fake village hall, built in the 1930s to help revive and promote the music that Cecil Sharp had been collecting and it's an amazing building because it's a 1930s impression of Mm. what a village hall should be. It's got this glass, well it had this glass in the windows when it was first built which was designed to let in health-giving UV light, (laughs) especially kind of um, patented yeah, (laughs) 1930s um, technology, but as a place it's it's got real atmosphere to it, and I've seen lots of great folk musicians play there because they all they all do if they can. It's the place. It's the place to be in London. And mostly folk is associated with smaller venues. You know, any anywhere you can play basically, and people aren't fussy. They play in tiny tiny pub back rooms, and that's all part of the. Um, the significance of the scene, really, that it can do that. Um, but the Cecil Sharp House is the grand setting.
0: It's like the Albert Hall for folk music. It right? is, yeah. yeah.
1: But at the same time, when there's a gig going on, there's always going to be some people downstairs having a, a sword dancing class who'll be a bit grumpy with you for getting in their way. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not glamorous either. That like is, that. Uh, it
0: is also located in the posh bit, isn't it, of Camden? You know, towards the yeah. park. Getting up towards Primrose Hill and, and and the zoo, of course. Yeah,
1: it is. It's it's poised on the divide where mm. Camden becomes something different, and Primrose mm. Hill's always been different. So, Primrose Hill's right next to Camden, but it's actually quite separate because it's got the railway line running in between, and it's quite quite hard to get directly from one to the other. You have to go up, you know, one of two particular roads really. But Primrose Hill. In the late 19th century, in the Booth surveys, poverty surveys of London, which documented the character of areas in a lot of detail, was described as an island and as Mm. being essentially a bit dull. (laughs) (laughs) So it's always had that reputation in relation to Camden, for better or for worse. It's quiet and residential, Camden's um, a bit volatile.
0: You mention, in fact, the title of your book. um, You know, it comes from a Blake quote, uh, the book Dreams of Another London. And the quote, it's another England there I saw, another London with its tower. And there's another quote from Jerusalem which you put in there, which says the fields from Islington to Marlaba and Marybone, he calls it. The fields from Islington to Marybone to Primrose Hill and St. John's Wood were builded over with pillars of gold and there Jerusalem's pillars stood. So Blake <laughs> cited, the new Jerusalem there, right? Yeah. Uh, that leads into this other aspects of Camden, this kind of esoteric Spiritualist yes. stuff.
1: I like the the way that um, Blake and others who've um, built a mythology around London have attached it to the places that you would perhaps least associate with that kind of level of significance. So Charles Stukeley, who was a amateur um, fictional archaeologist, effectively from late eighteenth century, thought that the veil of Kings, um, which Contained the burial sites of ancient uh, rulers of Britain was was Vale Royal behind King's Cross, so between King's Cross and Camden, effectively. So, the, these places, you know, often very overlooked, um, degraded landscapes have a different character, right. and I think that applies to Camden too. That it's you have you have to be able to see in it what um, mm. what you want to see, and you can. Um, it can be it can be what you want it to be, I think, and um certainly Blake you know saw places that hmm. people overlooked and that others didn't really value hmm. and saw them as something something different, something well, special. Prob-
0: probably had some of his dark satanic mills, didn't it when, kind of, when all that smoke was pouring out. And it's still a mythical well, place, isn't it? I mean, didn't um, J.K. Rowland, didn't you cite um, the... Didn't, didn't you get onto the express train to Hogwarts from um, the mythical platform on King's Cross, apparently? Yes,
1: know. yes, although, of course, that's you know <clears throat> that that's avoiding Camden, isn't it? It's, <laughs> Camden's a place you pass through quickly on the train, ah. going somewhere else. So it's got that character of a place behind a station as well. Mm-hmm. And I think places behind stations are particularly interesting too. So you come out the front of King's Cross, Western or Euston, and London is ahead of you. You walk right, forward into London, into Bloomsbury, you stride out of the exit mm. and head into town. Whereas to get to Camden, you have to take a right and then kind of go around the back and get around the HS2 works, mm. and then head up an extremely inhospitable road, Hansett Road, or or Shultz Street, neither of them particularly attractive. And then you're not really at Camden anyway because it's somewhere else in between, and mm. eventually you get there. So it's it's not the place you're immediately meant to go to. It's very interesting, though, that that's where um, arrivals from Ireland and elsewhere ended up. So they they didn't head straight into town. They turned around the back to go somewhere where they'd least be noticed, potentially, in terms of, you know, prices, of right. accommodation, but also general attention, uh, right. which may not have been that welcome. And in fact, Camden's been a bit of a bolt hole for various people trying to stay a bit off the radar, particularly... Rambo and Valen, who spent time on Royal College Street.
0: Jean-Nicolas Arthur Rambo was a French poet known for his transgressive and surreal themes. He started writing at a very young age and excelled as a student, but abandoned his education to run away to Paris. A libertine and a restless soul, he engaged in a hectic and at times violent relationship with the fellow poet Paul Verlaine. He had sent Valen two letters in 1871. Valen was intrigued and replied, Come, dear great soul, we await you, we desire you, and sent him a one-way ticket to Paris. They began a brief and torrid affair, spiced by absinthe, opium and hashish. Their stormy relationship brought them to London in September 1872, during which time Valen abandoned his wife and son. They lived in poverty in Bloomsbury and in Camden Town, scraping a living from teaching, as well as with an allowance from the indulgent mother of Valen. Rambo spent his days in the reading room of the British Museum, where heating, lighting, pens and inks were free. But the relationship between the two poets grew bitter, and Valen abandoned Rambo in London to return to his wife.
1: They were living outside the the bounds of... um social acceptability for sure they'd run away together um you know rambo young man um, fiery and dangerous uh, verlaine respectable character with a wife so running away with a um, you know hot young guy to live in another city <laughs> in that time was very much um very much putting himself outside society so the fact they ended up in camden suggests you could be there and not be particularly conspicuous. The house that they lived in, very briefly, they lodged there, extremely tempestuous relationship, Um, kept cutting each other with knives for sort of general entertainment in the evenings, apparently. Um, That was, it wasn't a particularly pleasant part of Camden, I don't think. It's the wrong side of Camden in some ways. It's the bit that nobody goes down. They go down the high street, they don't go down Royal College Street. So lots of traffic, quite a lot of people kind of hanging around um, up to no good. That sort of feel to it, a bit less so now, but, it does still feel on the margins. Mm. Um, and these two were here for a very, very short space of time. They couldn't stand each other, really, for any great length of time. But they, um, they left this, this sort of lasting cultural impression. They sort of ran in, put a stamp on this <laughs> obscure back street, and then, then fled.
0: Why to Camden, you know, of all places? But as you said well, earlier, uh, it was behind the station. It was, so it was, you get there kind of quite easily, but also it's yeah. out of sight. Wrong side of well. the tracks, definitely. Wrong side of the tracks, out of sight...
1: But also an immigrant um, history going back quite a long way. So there were Huguenots in the area. And in old St. Pancras Churchyard, behind the station, you've got a memorial to exiled Huguenots um, who were disinterred for the building of the railway and their remains um, put together under this memorial. Hmm. And then you have Spaniards. So um, in the Napoleonic Wars, Napoleon invaded the peninsula um, and... Spaniards fled, and Spaniards ended up in London, which is not particularly well understood, I think. That connects to the Carreras Cigarette Factory. It's an amazing Art Deco building that takes up an entire block at Mornington Crescent. It's a huge pseudo-Egyptian thing. Mm. It's called Greater London House now. It's got two enormous effigies of black cats sitting at the entrance. And that's a Spanish cigarette company set up by um, emigres Mm. who'd, who'd fled Spain during the Napoleonic Wars, so there's, just, there's descriptions at the time from um, Dickens, I think, of um, disconsolate Spaniards walking the streets of Camden Town, smoking cigarettes. Mm. They set up this um, this factory; it's incredibly successful. Black Cat Cigarettes are very big in uh, the interwar period. The, cig- the factory was enormous, employed three thousand people. It's also, in some ways, a a disgrace because it's built on gardens. It's built on the gardens of Mornington Crescent. And people were absolutely horrified by this. So, you know, you have this lovely residential crescent with a green bit in the middle, and somebody built an enormous factory on it. And people were so annoyed that an Act of Parliament was put through protecting London parks and squares and stopping this from ever happening again. Right. But the fact it happened once, and you have this really unlikely, incredibly flamboyant Mm. building right in the centre of residential area is, is brilliant, really.
0: Yeah, it is a handsome building. You know, you mentioned Old uh, St Pancras, and I wanted to just drop in and can sort of, as we sort of circle towards the roundhouse, to sort of go, just go through esoteric Camden. Old St Pancras Church, of course, which is reputed to be on a prehistoric mound, isn't it? And then up on... upon um, Primrose Hill, and north of there. You've got Boudicca's Tomb,
1: <laughs> alleged
0: Bronze Age mound. You've got the River Fleet underneath. and um, Is it yeah. sort of too much of a stretch to sort of uh, connect those with the sort of spiritualist, esoteric aspects of Camden Town?
1: People are very keen to, to make these connections mm. to aspects of the landscape and to, to spin a web around the place. The alternative culture in Camden has flourished on this amongst other aspects of the area. Mm. I think the... You know, the sort of imaginative archaeology of William Stukeley and others is mostly responsible for the way that the landscape is seen around there. And there's always this story that Old St. Pancras Church is the oldest site of Christian worship in the country, which is there's no real evidence that that's at all true. Um... But it's a nice idea. It feels right mm. because it's so isolated. It's so central mm. yet feels completely separate. What it is really is an island by the mm. um, by the river fleet. The river fleet's buried under the railway line that leads into King's Cross. The riverside areas, as London began to industrialise, became quickly not very nice. No sewage mm. system. Rivers became very polluted. Sources of disease, um, general dampness. And this is actually where Dickens lived. So... Dickens' family lived on Bayham Place hmm. in a house that was... It was only demolished in 1910, which I suppose is quite a long time ago, really, but it's it's just within sort of touching distance of, um, you know, documentation, photography and everything else. Mm. But that was an extremely poor part of town. It was described as potentially the worst housing in London at the time. Dickens' family were very poor. But it was also separate. So, so when they moved in there in the 1820s, it was a walk from a village into town to get to work, so Mm. his father worked at Somerset House and he walked across the fields from Camden to get to Somerset House along the river, and it's only when the railway came ten years later that suddenly Camden's connected to the rest of London and stops being a village and starts being a fast changing Mm. uh, place no longer a suburb
0: And for listeners who want to know more about the fleet, check out Tom's books, Lost Rivers Um, You mentioned then Dickens and sort of, you know 19th century and i want to sort of fast forward a little bit um because of course camden is also associated with various other writers and thinkers hg wells right? yeah primrose hill um is the place where the martians are <laughs> defeated finally in war of it the Worlds, right
1: uh, and, and the martians war machines are um potentially in informed inspired by the by the railways at Camden, by the, 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 you know, the smoke and the noise at night and the light and the, the dominance of heavy machinery.
0: Right. And then you also have Bram Stoker there later, right? And then uh, like moving further on, um, uh, Yeats, Alistair Crowley. And then right up to, you know, Ted Hughes, Sylvie Platt, You've got all these all, all these associations with, with Camden as well. And there's this spiritualist thing. Well, I never knew about it until I read your book, but it's Rochester Square Spiritualist Temple.
1: Well, I think those those spiritualist churches were an extremely common site, um, and have gradually faded away. I think what's amazing is that they're not all, they haven't all long since vanished. So spiritualism had this um, boom at the turn of the 19th, 20th centuries, which was really boosted by this, the First World War. I mean, it's kind of, awful, read really to think about it, but people were desperate to get in touch with the dead because right. so many had suddenly died, yeah. including Arthur Conan Doyle, who'd mm. um, lost his son. So he was, he, he was involved with this movement, but so were many others. Lots of people were very respectable, got into spiritualism, and the spiritualist churches thrived on that. Um, the one on Rochester Square is no longer operational. As far as I can tell, as in
0: the no longer contracting the dead, or
1: well, uh, n- probably probably not that either. No.
0: I've got to tell you my story actually, then, because of course when oh, yes. I first came to London, I came to Camden. You know, yeah. like all those people you're talking about, it was affordable then. You know, that that time, just about. But I mean, I moved into a flat, and um, which maybe this gives a flavour of all the stuff you've been talking about. I moved into a flat, quite a, quite a nice flat, but it, it, quite a nice house, but a sort of scuzzy flat. I was sharing with a couple of friends, and. Um, In the house next door, there was a famous actor. He had the whole house. And on the other side, there was a famous pop star. He had the whole house. And downstairs, there was a girl who made dirty phone calls for a living. (laughs) Uh, And I remember thinking, I'm never leaving London. This is it. You know, I'm from a sort of small town in the north of England. It's like, I'm not leaving. This is London, right? And it had all that stuff. And you could get up at sort of with nail time on a Saturday (laughs) and go to the market. And it was like, what else would you like?
1: I come from a small town in the Midlands and I have the same feelings about London ever since I got here. But I wasn't living in Camden. And if I had been, I'd have have been loving it, I'm sure. Because it has, it's got enormous potential for freedom, Mm. I think. Um, freedom across whatever kind of context you want to put put on it and I think that's why it's important to London that there are these places and you think oh well if this is Camden is somewhere else but there isn't anywhere like that that has mm. that, those associations, those connections so I think it's culturally very important and I have a feeling that the state of Camden is a bit of a barometer hmm. for the state of the capital as a whole
0: I think also something else has happened, isn't it, which is that the east of London has become a mecca for a lot of young people arriving here. I mean, yeah. I've noticed, you know, that you know lots of young people now, what either do or would like to live, work, and go out entirely in East London. Yes. you know, in Hackney, in Dalston in Shoreditch obviously and Hoxton you know, yeah. and, and that the centre of gravity somewhat has moved uh, and maybe that's affected places like Camden and Portobello too which have sort of been a bit more stuck in time but I mean I went up to the market uh, you know month ago and it was interesting on the bridge you know there were three i think probably spanish goth slash punks <laughs> good uh, you know the guy <laughs> the guy was there with a massive mohican uh and lots of piercings and stuff and yeah. you know they were sm- they were smoking and drinking beer from cans i went up a couple of days later they were still there i mean they obviously had been, <laughs> obviously been home since or been somewhere since but what were they doing Possibly. there? they were promenading yeah. they were just being counter yeah. in their own way right and it, you know and that's still that feels like camden to me you know you, you punks and goths will go there to either get a tattoo yeah. or buy some gear
1: i think that's it i think it's a bit more niche probably and mm. certainly i'm in mean, slime light as well which is not too far away there's mm. there's goth nights nearby so i think it's more of a kind of particular tribes venue but mm. the fact that people go there and it's incredibly popular and mm. still very full is obviously a sign that it's a success in in many ways mm. like the second most visited place in london on um, international tourism measures. In okay, the 70s, the market was um, a craft market, really, mm. full of makers and artisans. And the reason it was like that is because the market was on the route of the projected uh, London uh, motorway box, Ringway 1. So an incredible amount of destruction mm. was planned, really, for demolition all the way through to the centre of Camden to put an elevated motorway in. Unfortunately that never happened, I mean that would have, essentially that would have taken out all the town centres in, in um, Zone 1 and most of them in Zone 2, I think. Yeah. So it's, it, ha- it had this kind of terrifying, apocalyptic future yeah. planned for it, but in the meantime nobody wanted the spaces. They didn't want the buildings by the market, by the, by the uh, canal, um, which are now the market. They didn't want a lot of other buildings in London too, so there was this kind of hiatus when things sort of moved in and started to, to happen. And that's when um, Dingwalls became a venue and when people Estate. started making things in the market.
0: And the lock and the stables uh, and the market's just spread and spread and spread. It's amazing going there now. It's got even bigger, you know. It just keeps, keeps sort of spreading up towards uh, Chalk Farm,
1: right? Absolutely enormous. If you walk from um, the bottom of the market all the way up to Chalk Farm Road, you've got this long wall along one side of the road. It's the wall of the market which is built up behind it using ashes and tunnel spoil, So it's the, the level of the market is much higher than the road, chalk Farm Road next to it. And then behind that, you've got this vast space. Um, and that's, that shows you the dominance of the railways over Camden. And the Roundhouse.
0: Here is a sidebar about the Roundhouse, one of the great psychedelic countercultural axes of London. It was built in 1846 as a shed for the London and Birmingham Railway. But within 10 years, locomotives were too long to fit in it and it was used for various other purposes. The longest being as a warehouse for gin distillers. Abandoned and empty at various times, in 1964, it was transferred to Centre 42, which prepared a scheme to convert it into a permanent cultural centre. In 1966, it became an arts venue. The opening concert, an all-night rave, where Soft Machine and Pink Floyd appeared, was also the launch of the underground newspaper International Times. In the next year, it hosted the Dialectics of Liberation with R.D. Lang, Herbert Marcuse and Allen Ginsberg. It became a centre for underground music events, including the club Middle Earth and Implosion. Bands playing there included Gas, The Rolling Stones, Jeff Beck, The Yardbirds, Zoot Money's, Dan Talion's Chariot, David Bowie, Graham Bond, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, The Incredible String Man, Fleetwood Mac, The Doors, and Jefferson Airplane. Later, The Ramones, The Clash, The Jam, Elvis Costello, Otis Redding, and Motorhead. The Greater London Council passed the building to Camden, 1983, and various attempts were made to establish it as a black arts centre. But it was closed due to lack of funds. During this time on New Year's Eve 1991, Spiral Tribe held a week-long party, during which the generators cut out, so power had to be sourced from the nearby British rail train lines. The building lay largely empty until it was purchased for £6 million in 1996 by philanthropist Torquil Norman. After renovation, it reopened in June 2006 and remains a rather nice venue. For great musical events,
1: so it's best known, I suppose, for the um, UFO Club, which was moved there really only briefly. I think it was only run at the Roundhouse for eight eight weekends, um, but it left an enormous cultural mark beyond that. So the UFO Club was um, the 60s psychedelic club happening, of choice, happening
0: slightly. Like, it was kind of music. Food, yeah, visual visuals, arts,
1: the, the Boyle family's um, slides, um, yeah, poetry you know, happenings, drugs, drugs the whole thing, right? Yeah, indeed. And they were meeting in a basement on Tottenham Court Road, and they were closed by the police. So apparently, um, the, well, I don't think the police really understood what was going on, but they went in and and saw people apparently smoking joss sticks, as they put it, and there was a weird smell around of incense, and on that basis, they closed the club. <laughs> Which I, smell I'm not sure didn't smell right. I'm not sure if it was just the terminology was wrong, or if they yeah. thought the incense was a drug, or what. I don't know, but it's clearly some a bit of a barrier there. Um, but they moved to the Roundhouse, um, although this didn't turn out very well because it was a like most big 60s events, it was a, extremely badly organised and a bit of a disaster on one level. So it's Michael Hoppy Hopkins mm-hmm. and um, Joe Boyd. They ran it together, but um, Hoppy Hopkins was uh, jailed for possession of Cannabis in a kind of test case, strike back against the counterculture. So he was at the picture, and it all went off the rails pretty quickly. It was the kind of event where um, you you might find Paul McCartney there, mm. Carnival of Light, um, which he attended in disguise, supposedly. All sorts of people who basically come there specifically. So Camden became full of hippies. Right, created a bit of tension. It wasn't a hippie place. So you right. think about Camden as being counterculture now, but. In 1967, 68, it was somewhere that um, was full of working class people who didn't see this sort of stuff very often. And there were fights in the streets. There was quite a lot of tension. And hippies coming up the Chalk Farm Road, it was a sight that attracted attention kathy
0: wrote this later but kathy unsworth described it as uh, all the cutthroats gutter snipes sorcerers drinkers and dreamers who've come this way before and then miles barry miles of course uh, described it as um a place for grubby revolutionary hippies so not the swinging 60s yeah. uh you know granny yeah. granny granny took a trip type people it was much more kind of dirty down and dirty right
1: lots of people really wanted to play there and and did most of them for um Minimal fees as well, so UFO came and went, and clubs came and went, but the as a gig venue it began to develop a a presence and a reputation and apparently um, the only people who demanded full full payment you know market fees were the Rolling stones Of course of course if, <laughs> can fairport convention um quite happy to play for less um so yeah you you have this this real musical scene developing there, but also a performance and theater scene, so Arnold Wesker. Uh, before this, had effectively set set up the Roundhouse as an arts centre called Centre 42. It's about access to the arts for everybody. So on a fairly kind of socialist and utop- utopian almost basis, he set this place up. It also hosted a lot of really interesting theatre, particularly in the 70s. Uh, so that included things like um, Peter Brook's Midsummer Night's Dream, which was done on trapezes, psychedelic clothing, white box. <laughs> Messy, but um was apparently very memorable. And you have people like the Living Theatre who were, um, I think they tried to levitate at the end of many of their performances.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that, yeah, or, or I think this didn't start off by sitting down in silence for half an hour trying to levitate. And in
1: happened. fact, levitation seems to feature quite a lot. So th- there's a, an event there called the International Dialectics Convention. It involved people like Stokey Car- Stokely Carmichael, Black Panther leader speaking, um, Ginsburg, uh, many other intellectuals of the... of of the era um, all turned up to this event it was said to be the intellectual version of levitating the pentagon but that was a reference to um, protest in the states the year before when um, the 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 negotiations Britain vietnam war protesters and the government about whether they were whether they'd be allowed to levitate the White House or not, <laughs> and they'd wanted to levitate it by three hundred feet, but eventually the government negotiated turned to three feet, so they got permission <laughs> to levitate and whatever they wanted, and then they took this, this spirit to the round, to the Roundhouse, and this intellectual strain leads through to Compendium, which was founded on the back of that um, key bookshop across the high street from the market, which closed in two thousand, but was a a very memorable place for anyone who's lucky enough to have, to have gone there.
0: Yeah, political, alternative, anarchistic type stuff, isn't it? I yes, mean, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, and lots of um, banned material mm. available when mm. when material was banned like that. Mm. Um, lots of poetry too, lots of poetry readings.
0: Yeah, we've not had time really to go into uh, in this... In the Bureau of Lost Culture programmes into like, alternative theatre and a little bit of poetry with Ian Sinclair. And the other thing, of course, which you haven't even had time to mention today is this politics. I mean, Camden's been quite a political place. Camden Council used to be quite political, didn't it? I mean, Karl Marx lived there for a while. He's buried, <laughs> up, he's buried up the road too, isn't he? Just not far from But well, and Highgate
1: Cemetery. Engels lived nearby as well. And you have a number of um, significant figures from the 60s and 70s too. So Ruth First and um, mm. Joe Slovo lived in exile from apartheid Africa in Camden. And you have a number of other leaders um, of anti-colonial movements who spent time in, in Camden. So even after the war, it was still a place to to retreat to, potentially. I think that's what gives it this intrigue. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that so m- it, it is a small place. You look mm-hmm. on the map, you think that's not much, to, not much to Camden. There aren't many streets. But when you start to chart what's happened, he's been there, he's lived there, he's spent time in these places. What goes on there and what still goes on there it's an incredible concentration of personalities and ideas, and places, and I, you know, I, I think a has that, has that kind of feel to it as well in a different way, um, but these little grids of streets surrounded mm. by, the rest of the city, which draw people into them, mm. they've got a particular magic. I think.
0: under darkness as well I mean actually of course Camden is also home to Levitons, the oldest family undertakers in yes. a, in London and also of course there's a site of serial killers as well, let's not
1: leave them out of the story time, oh, come on well, give, yes. us the, <laughs> give us a list of serial killers of Camden Well there's, I, I suppose I mean the, the more gruesome end of this is the 2000s when there was a whole series of deeply unpleasant murders mm. um, which made you think that Camden hadn't changed as much as you might have hoped but if you go back to the Bedford Musical, this um, centre for performance until um, the Second World War, it's associated with um, Crippen, Hen- Henry Holly Crippen, who was notorious, really, for being the first murderer to be caught by telegraph because he tried to escape the um, ship across the Atlantic. With his lover. With his lover. His lover, <laughs> Ethel Laniv. So um, they were convicted for murdering um, his wife, who was a performer, at the Bedford Music Hall. Um, But the thing about Ethel and Eve is, well, she she wasn't convicted of the murder. She got out of prison, went off to live a completely different life in Sydenham and died in 1967. And her children didn't know who she was. Hmm. So it was only in 1980 when a reporter came calling um, that they discovered she'd in fact been Crippen's lover and uh, not the apparently rather (laughs) cantankerous old woman who they remembered her as. Um yeah the 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 other connection there is Sickert so mm. Sickert made these paintings of uh Mornington Crescent lodgings which are pretty seedy places still pretty seedy actually there's some really you know not great flats at that end of Canton despite the way that other streets have been polished up in 19th century buildings and he painted those interiors with kind of fictional scenes some some of them involving women who had been murdered and it was it was part of a sort of Edwardian hmm. fashion for problem pictures, which set out an ambiguous uh, series of events and left you to interpret them. And it was about the conditions as well. But Sickert's been associated with um, Jack the Ripper by various self-publicists like Patricia Cornwell. Mm. Um, There's no evidence the all, but the, the general atmosphere that he creates in these pictures is an atmosphere of the same sort of Londonness as the Ripper Murders belonged to.
0: And, of course, he was part of the Camden Group, or was the leader of the Camden Group of Artists as well, wasn't he?
1: Yes, he was. And the Camden Group, um, which is also associated with the Cumberland Market Group, th- they, were, they were known for the thickness of their painting by the, <laughs> um, by the people who, you know, criticised their style. They laid it on, um, described as the thickest of painters. But they painted local scenes, including, you know, apparently very ordinary places, like Cumberland Market, which was... Um, 19th century terraces. And this leads through, or directly, really, to Frank Auerbach. He was taught by David, David Bomberg, who was taught by Sickert. And he's a refugee, came to London, the kinder transport. And he paints the thickest of pictures. He
0: certainly does, yeah, yeah. Don't, um, they don't come thicker than um, they Frank Auerbach. They do
1: not. There's <laughs> impasto everywhere. Mm-hmm. And he, he lives in a studio just off Moynton Crescent, mm-hmm. paints the area, has done since the 50s. Paints the ordinary scenes, paints the tower blocks across the road, the, the streets, the buses, um, and he's he's said to be Britain's Britain's greatest living painter. I mean, you know, a character who is deeply associated with the place because that's what he paints, that's where he lives, that's where he spends almost all his time, mm. um, and he's sort of the spirit of Moynton Crescent in some way. We were talking about gentrification, and gentrification is very associated with Camden. So this is people moving into previously dilapidated. Large houses that need work in places where they've been overlooked because people moved out of the city, mostly because of the war. But in Camden, it's very much associated with the cultural elite. That it goes back further actually than the than other aspects of the counterculture in the place because Mm. the arrival of these people changed the tone.
0: Of course, but that's isn't that always the way with gentrification? I mean, yeah. what will happen in Shoreditch? I mean, it's the same thing, isn't it? Basically, you've got an area which is down and out, a bit scuzzy, um, you know, maybe in, in slightly industrial in, in flavor. The first people who move in are the artists, are artistic types. Yeah. Why? Because it's cheap, right? Oh yeah, no indeed. They, they they move in. There's often a bit of resistance from the locals. But these kind of weirdos, hippies, bohemians, arty yeah. types moving in. But they just sort of settle down quite comfortably next to each other because they're sort of maybe on the same economic sort of level, haven't they? And then what happens when a place becomes arty? Is guess what? Of course, then the, you know, people who want who are not artists themselves or writers or whatever, but want to be associated with them, they like the vibe of it, they move in. Of course, they're from a slightly higher, higher economic class and then Absolutely. shops... Different types. of shops start to open different types. A cafe starts open, yeah. a bars start to open and then before you know it, the next people who move in is the estate agents. I mean isn't that happened time yeah. and time again throughout Well that's life?
1: certainly the that's the modern um, process of of change mm. in, in cities, definitely. And actually this links to with Neil and I because of course you've got um, Danny, the the dealer, um, complaining about they're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, man. Mm.
0: It's like that this is the end of was it the end of the greatest decade in human history or yes. something he describes it as.
1: And that's happening simultaneously with what we think as the greatest decade. It's not... This isn't happening um, after it's all finished. It's happening at the height Mm -hmm. of... Of and the 60s all simultaneously going on. It's already been commodified. and It's being sold back to us as like a as a parody of itself.
0: <laughs> well, there we have it. So you can still go to the Roundhouse. It's still, you know, I went to a show there recently. It's, it's become a kind of respectable gig venue. It's very nice yes. still to go there. And of course, Camden's fun to go there. You know, it's to wander through the markets. You can still find a bargain. And
1: I'm not writing Camden off. This mm. is the thing. So I think it's it's been all these things simultaneously mm. all the way through. So I think mm. probably if you have gone there in 1967, expected to find the things that we want to talk about now. And remember, you'd have found them and you'd have found other stuff that mm. hasn't featured because it just wasn't as interesting. There is a sense that this is a place that people are coming to to make something happen still, which is the most important thing. That people want to be there. They want to spend time there. And once they start doing that, things start to go on.
0: And as a friend of mine said, If you can't change anything else, have a tattoo.
1: <laughs> got an awful lot of tattoo parlours there. I noticed when I was up there last bit. Oh, and there's also um, the, the street art of Camden. I didn't yeah. mention that. So I think the the bit of the high road that leads from the tube station up to the market is almost unique in Britain. And it's got these um, bespoke sculptures on the upper stories of shops advertising what they sell. This is a direct throwback to the pre-literacy era. So if you look at, collections of folk art they often have shop signs that have been saved from the early 19th century the 18th century a massive pair of boots to signify a boot shop massive pair of spectacles to hang over your your um, spectacle this in Camden,
0: yeah. If you're coming, so if you're coming from, you know, Kazakhstan and you've heard about Camden and you come there, you know where to get
1: your trainers because there's a gigantic pair of Converse, Converse outside the shop, right? But these are always changing. They're made by mm. um, a particular local artist and it, who's who's you know been supplying these shops for for years. But it's not a static kind of listed selection of of sculptures. It's folk art. It really is. It changes all the time. You go back there and it's half of them are gone. They've been replaced mm. by something else. um but I find that fascinating because it's a, that that gives that part of the high street a really particular atmosphere actually. <laughs> Makes it feel like somewhere different where things aren't quite the way you expect them to be.
0: So there it is, it's still going on. The countercultural
1: life of Camden Town.
0: Thanks very much, Tom.
1: Thank you very much. That was that was great. Appreciate being asked to talk about these things.
0: Thanks to Tom for that terrific wander through the life and countercultural times of Camden Town. I'll put a link to Tom's work in the show notes, of course. Thanks to you for coming with us on The Wander. Don't forget, you can wander through more of our work at BureauOfLostCulture.com or be in touch, Culture at gmail.com We love to hear from friends. See you, hear you, next time for more Tales from the Underground, Tales from the Other Side, from the Upside Down. This episode was sponsored by the artist known as The Real Tuesday World www.tuesdaywell.com. Here is their track, at the House of the Clark and Well Kid, from the album, The Return of the Clark and Milt.